Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curve, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curve. Hello there, it's six o'clock, I'm Michelle Jubery and this is Jubes and Co, the show where we'll get into some of the things that have got you talking today. Now, the royal family, where do you stand on them? The taxpayers spending past £100 million for the first time last year when it comes to the royals. Are they worth it? That's what I'm asking tonight. And the NHS, we all know by now, don't we, what the problems are, but what are the solutions? Is the future digital? And a cross-party review has confirmed that babies are not allowed in the House of Common Chamber during debates. Sensible or silly? What about babies in the workplace generally? Good idea or not? Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel. We've got Charlotte Pickles, who's the director of the Reform Think Tank. Kevin Craig, who's the former Labour councillor. And the CEO of PLMR journalist, Tessa Clark. Also, you know the drill on Jubes and Co, don't you? It's about not just us, although welcome to you three. It's about you at home as well and your thoughts. What is on your mind tonight? Get in touch with me on email. GBviews at gbnews.uk is the email. Or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at GB News. You can, if you haven't already, subscribe to us on YouTube. You can download our app, um, social media. We're everywhere, including, by the way, DAB Plus Radio. So wherever you are, you are very welcome indeed tonight. Lots of you getting in touch already on some of those uh, stories I mentioned, particularly about the lo- uh, the royal family. Adriana says... Um, When I was a five-year-old child, I caught a glimpse of the Queen during um, an outing with the Brownies, and I remember to this day a feeling of real excitement. Hmm, Well, I'll be talking about the Royals in just a second, because specifically wondering whether or not they're worth the money. Over £100 million was spent. Um, John has got in touch. Thanks for this, John. Uh, Saying, last night, Michelle, you look like you was dressed in your pyjamas. Tonight, you look like you're dressed wearing your curtains. Lovely. Nice. Why do I bother? There's eh? a boost. Why do I bother? I'll tell you, my audience, cheeky, so-and-so's. <laughs> right, let's get into that royal family uh, conversation, shall we? This is my summer look, by the way. You can expect more florals. If you can't do florals in the summer, when can you do the florals? Uh, that's for those of you that are listening, thinking, what on earth has she come dressed as? Florals is a short answer. Right, spending on the royal family reached a whopping £102.4 million last year, reports as revealed today. That is up 17% from last year, and it's the first time that the spending has passed £100 million in a year. Got to be fair to this, though, by the way, because a lot of the media are furious about today, about this today, saying, of course, we're at a cost of living crisis, or why are we spending all this money, etc. But one of the reasons it was so high is because it does include costs for uh, the renovation of Buckingham Palace. Uh, But to give you some context here, taxpayers contribute just over £86 million towards the royal family every single year. But I just want to put that in a bit more context as well. 
That's one pound, I think it's one pound 29 per person, per year. Are they worth it, Charlotte? Definitely. I mean, £1.26 per person. No, £1.29. £1.29, sorry. Yes. I mean, I, you know, it's a really, it's a really interesting discussion to have, isn't it? Because people are focusing on the cost, but not actually thinking about how much money the royal family bring in for the Exchequer. So, yes, £100 is a very large amount of money, £86 from taxpayers. But actually... There are all sorts of assessments of the additional value from tourism, from the uh, tax that uh, comes from the sales of all the different royal merchandise you can get if you go to a gallery or a palace or, you know, when people go and visit these sites. Um, There was one assessment that was done looking at the five years running up to 2019, so just before the pandemic, um, that said that actually the overall value of the royal family in those five years was about £2.8 billion to the Exchequer. So, yes... No one is going to sit here, I'm sure, and say 100 million is a lot of money. But if you're bringing in multiples of that for taxpayers uh, each year, then then I think actually that does represent quite good value for money. And I think the other thing is, you know, there's obviously been some uh, bumpy trips recently and some controversy, and you know, rightly some questions being asked around how the royal family positions some of the history. Um, but actually. Ultimately, they're a huge asset in terms of the soft power Britain has. And, you know, that, that um, uh, a person who'd emailed in saying just glimpsing the, the Queen, I mean, you know, that's an incredibly powerful experience. And I think we saw that over the Jubilee, that the royal family were really bringing the nation together on this really positive experience. So I think they're great. I think they're definitely worth the money. Tessa, do you agree? Uh, No, I don't agree, because although I would say, yes, it's an amazing feat for uh, the Queen to have lived so long and do uh, her job uh, and role as head of state uh, and bring the nation together about certain values to do uh, with resilience, uh, with with nationhood, um, that's all very well. But really what we're talking about here is the idea that there's so much money spent, but where's the accountability? And, And I think that it doesn't really matter whether the head of state is elected or not because there'll always be money to be spent on renovating palaces, on the nation's art gallery and art collection, uh, on on simply running a diplomatic service, really, to host heads of state in that wonderful banquet room in Buckingham Palace. So that there'll always be money spent. So I think that it's not really just a question of accountability to do with how the money's spent as such, because, you know, the accounts are made, they're made public, they're presented to Parliament, they're scrutinised by the National Audit Office. If we want full accountability for how our state is run, we need to have elected representatives. Uh, and that's really the argument and the debate that we, we should be having more of, but- rather than just ignore it and say, oh, yes, they wear nice frocks, it's good for Britain. But I'm intrigued that you associate um, being elected with therefore true accountability, because we have a number of elected MPs, <laughs> and I would say that one thing that they absolutely yeah. lack is proper accountability for the things that they do, the mistakes they make, the decisions, yeah. etc. So I don't necessarily uh, correlate entirely elected with accountability. Well, the thing is, at least we can vote MPs out, but we can't vote the Queen out, we can't vote Prince Andrew out. So... What would you they, they, they still, they're, they're born into it, you know. You so, so my uh, point is that we need to debate more what we want from our society. Do we want every single leader to be elected? Uh, is it worth it? What do we get out of it? We can vote them out. We can put pressure on them. And if our MPs or anyone else, head of, new head of state, uh, is not up to the task, that we don't agree with their policies, 
We can say so. We can put pressure on them. And the we Queen, can maybe vote them the out. The royal family has nothing to do just, though, with it. Yeah, I, I think it, what, where I do agree with Tessa is it's good to debate the topic, right? But the idea that there'll be more accountability in some form of elected uh, head of state role, I think, is very questionable. I mean, I've, I've stood in one in a lot of uh, local elections, lost in parliamentary elections. Um, I'm much more interested, if you want to talk about accountability of the ruling class, then let's have proportional representation. Let's make mm-hmm. votes matter, right? Because they don't in this country. If you're stuck in a safe seat, Labour Tory, they're weighing the votes, you know, your, your vote doesn't matter. But the royal family... We debated fam- just that topic on Tubes and Co last night, proportional representation. I can only assume you were watching. Well, Blued, Kevin. I, I, I would have been. Fam- family issues, Michelle, but oh. not for now. But the, um, on the royal family... You know, they, they are accountable in that they have to read the mood of the country and the joy that they bring, the unifying presence. Did you see the world leaders send their messages to the Queen mm. for her jubilee? It was sensational. And I think they're cheap at half the price. Tessa, I'm looking well, back at you. democracy can't be bought off like that. I mean, what you're effectively arguing is that uh, instead of the, everyone else, all our viewers, everyone in the country having a say and having a degree of power collectively to decide what happens, it's okay to have appointees and people born into positions with nice hearts. But I think it's really? I think there's a really important <laughs> distinction hats. here between um, the uh, figurehead role of the royal family yeah. uh, who have nothing to do with policy, yeah. who are not making legislation, who are not... Um, involved in actually the democratic process of deciding the colour of the party and what their manifesto would look like, that's democracy. And we could have a very lengthy conversation about how we improve democracy in the country. That is not the role of the royal family. The royal family are there as a, you know, a representation, if you like, of the country. And what the money is going to is funding them to go and represent Britain, not to make any decision. You know, part of the benefit of them is they're above politics. You know, there is no kind of left or right or this colour or that colour. They are there to represent the whole nation. And therefore, actually, I think in a time of deep division politically, which is what we're living through, Mm -hmm. the value of that is huge. If only that was completely true, but unfortunately it isn't. And uh, there was news recently that, um, you know, the, uh, the, the palace uh, is sometimes uh, allowed to approve uh, laws and have a say in certain legislation because of their position, because of the different uh, also tax legislation. Uh, Prince Charles doesn't have to pay tax on his private income uh, from the Duchy of Cornwall. So, you know, there are these elements which actually which don't hold... to do with the royals, Don't though. hold... Uh, Not to do with the rest of the country. ...to be fully uh, the case. Uh, and it's a shame because if we had more debate, this would be more common knowledge, these kind of things. But instead of, oh, it's fine, they have no power. Yes, it is the government that used yeah. the royal prerogative powers, uh, the essential core state powers, to yes. do things without accountability. But it, it is not true that... Um, you know, to have sort of a born someone born into the role of head of state has simply no power at all. And this is the state we're talking about, the crown. And unfortunately, because we have so little debate, you know, it, it seems like, oh, well, they're just there to be celebrities. Of course, there's an element of that. And, you know, once they're gone, they can still be their celebrities. They'll still be part of our history. I think it trivialises it to say they're uh, when, celebrities, when I, went to I think America, they're incredibly important national There was figures. an amazing amount of actual uh, history 
Uh, in a republic, they don't have a monarch. America's an amazing no amount of history. Us, Tessa. <laughs> America's all over it, the place. It doesn't, yeah. no, it doesn't please, airbrush no. history Tessa, to say no. one wants a republic. America. That we should You're all have America, a say Tessa? in democracy. I'm using the idea of a republic. We don't want that. Well, doesn't, the American model doesn't... But that's not the point I'm making. I'm making a point about history. To have a republic doesn't mean that you remove history. No, yeah. it means that you can no, celebrate but what there was that. Nobody, and move nobody forward is at all saying to that. something more And in America, the model... Uh, actually, you can end up with someone becoming head of state who hasn't even got the majority of the popular vote. Yeah. You can't get that in this country. But so that's a different issue. Of course, but I'm I think you're about. conflating different issues here. And so I think it's quite important. You know, nobody is saying that the royals have absolutely no power. What we're making is a distinction between political power, which is your democratic accountability, and the power from being this unbelievable figurehead. And yes, you're right that the royals do have... Um, a role, and we can argue whether that's right or wrong, and you're absolutely right, we should have that debate mm. uh, in terms of legislation that impacts them. But actually, the bills that are going through at the moment, royal assent is a stamp. That's literally slippery. what it is. I mean, we've just had news that Prince Charles accepted bags full of cash. I mean, I thought there were laws on money laundering, but apparently they don't apply to him. These kind of issues There was no suggestion it was illegal activity. And we can certainly have a conversation about nations and people we think we want to take money from. And of yeah, course, you know, yeah. given all the Russian uh, oligarch stuff, you know, we can have that conversation. But there was no suggestion that actually there was an illegal action. All of that money that Prince Charles took, and I agree, it looks very odd. It's to unconventional, the cash, wasn't it? But it went to the charity. Certainly it went to his charity. To <laughs> and he, said, he did say, didn't he, he wouldn't repeat that. He wouldn't accept uh, yes. of cash. Quite right. Because it doesn't look good, right? <laughs> you mentioned, by the way, um, the annual income, the Prince of Wales annual income from the Duchy of Cornwall. Uh, 23.02 million, that figure I have that as. That's Mm. a lot of money. I wouldn't mind um, being (laughs) Prince Wales. You you, um, say about the not celebrities, the kind of heads of state and all the rest of it. They're both. You can't deny it. No, I I, I totally agree, but I'm saying they're not just just celebrities. I think that's that's misleading to say they're just celebrities. Um, I think it's much more than that. And I think even, you know, we were talking um, earlier about the Queen's role during the pandemic and that very powerful uh, address she gave in the middle of the pandemic and, and the impact that had on people, I think. And that, that was not a, a kind of celebrity act. That was a uh, that was seeing herself as someone who hopefully could bring some degree of hope, you know, some sense that things were going to improve, to provide that almost stability and reassurance. You, you, you mentioned the word resilience. I think that's a great word. Um, and I think that's why we need to see them as much more than celebrities. I think that trivialises their role. Marianne has emailed in and said, Tessa is very demeaning of our Queen. She is not just someone who wears a hat. She is respected by the world and she is a leading light in our country and worth every single penny. That's what Marianne, the viewer, says. Uh, Tessa, you say we should have a debate about this. Of course, we're debating it now and debates do kind of rumble on. Would you um, go as far as saying we essentially should have a referendum on this topic about whether or not we should have... I don't know what the, what the specific question would be, but would you be in favour of putting the future of the royals out to public referendum? Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic idea. Uh, you know, this has got nothing to do with uh, the Queen's uh, admirable uh, work and service uh, to the country. What this would is simply about the future. And, you know, it is amazing that we've had a, a massive vote for leave to bring back control to this country. And I think that now we're within Britain, we should bring back control totally within our system. So what would your question be on the referendum? Well, it would simply be, uh, do you want an elected head of state, yes or no? So that's just the Queen. But what about the rest of the royal family then? Well, it would all follow, wouldn't it? If if the head of state and and her family can't inherit the throne, 
Uh, it's an elected position. And they become interesting characters of our national life, which they are already, actually. Who would you have, Kevin, if you were choosing an elected head of state? Oh, uh, do you know, really? I'm not, Eve, I'm not going to go down that route, Michelle, because if I gave an answer, it wouldn't be popular. But I, I think the royal family are, they, they are part of what makes this country distinct. Our, our constitution, they don't have real power. The Queen's speech, for you and listeners remember, once a year, the government says, turn up, please, Queen, read that, will you? That's the reality of but it. But then don't you think um, there'll be people that uh, have passionately supported the royals, but in recent kind of um, years, they have been marred by a lot of scandals. A lot of people mm. will be writing in saying, you know, hang on a second, because millions of pounds, for example, are being spent on paying off um, cases of misdemeanours. Yes, well, People I mean, lose support over those. Yeah, kind of and, and and Andrew, uh, it, it, it cost him a lot to. He had to sell down quite a lot of his assets to, to to settle that case, and it was disgraceful. And he's kind of ostracised now from public life. But I think I understand the the theoretical arguments behind the Republican British Republican movement. But of all the things in this country at this time, you know, I would much rather have a referendum next week on proportional representation. Every vote matters in this country, far, far in front of a debate on the mon- a vote on the monarchy. Um, I think that would be much more um, improving of our democracy. Well, there you go. Adrian says, off with her head, anyone that's suggesting a referendum on this. The royals are fantastic. God save the Queen, says Adrian. Uh, what do you think to that referendum on the future of the royals? Yes? No? You tell me. I'm uh, going to take a quick break now. When I come back, I want to talk about the NHS. We all know about the words of the NHS by now, but what is the solution? Um, the IT plan for the future has been revealed. Is this the answer? to go digital. You tell me. I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Coming up on Dan Wharton tonight, after she plans to force through IndyRef 2 regardless of its legitimacy... Is the party over for Nicola Sturgeon's SNP? Plus, I'll catch up with brave Alex Mitchell, who's become the first victim of a rare vaccine-induced condition to win a payment from the government's vaccine damages scheme. And as ever, there'll be opinions galore from Dame Jenny Murray and my superstar panel. The Tory London mayoral candidate Sean Bailey, the author and broadcaster Amy Nicole, and the Conservative commentator Dominique Samuels. That's Dan Wooten tonight, Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Jubery. Keeping us company until 7 o'clock tonight, we have my panel, Charlotte Pickles, who's the director of the Reform Think Tank. Kevin Craig, the former Labour councillor, and journalist Tessa Clark. I can tell you, lots of response, particularly to your comments there, Tessa. I've got to say, lots of people are furious um, with the notion that we would do away with the royal family. They're not having any of that. I can tell you, capital letters, no, coming through when I'm asking, uh, what do you think? Should we continue uh, or should we have a big referendum about the royal family? Lots of people absolutely want the royal family to continue. Uh, Stuart says, Michelle, the royals cost way less than uh, even a top-class footballer these days and generate more interest and income than any of them. Yes, but Stuart, we, the taxpayers, don't pay for these top-flight footballers, do we? Um, so I'm not really sure. But in terms of ambassadors, 
I don't know, maybe you're onto something there. Uh, Darren, I like your suggestion. You say yes to a referendum. And while we're at it, let's do what you call the mother of all referendum and ask about everything. All at the same time, you're saying we should ask a referendum on assisted dying, reform of the House of Lords, <laughs> the monarchy, proportional representation. We could go on. In fact, actually, Darren might be onto something there. Just have one big referendum, get all of these big kind of contested issues out there in one big kind of foul swoop. Do you agree with this? Do you agree with that? Do you agree with this? One form, tick all your boxes, hope that you don't uh, get your lines confused and tick yes and no to the wrong different things. But you could sort out the nation like that. Well, it'd be like Switzerland. Yeah. They do a lot more referendums. Yeah, just keep going on. Not another one. Was it Brenda? Yes. Is it that Brenda who said yes. that? Not another one? Amen to her. <laughs> yes, but you wouldn't keep going with them, though, would you? No, you'd have Darren, once and done. Yeah, once and done. <laughs> you take Darren's suggestion, you get one big, um, one, big one, fix it all. Uh, that would be very good. Paddy says... What are you all suggesting? President May, President Corbyn, President Johnson, President Rayner, God help us all and God save the Queen. <laughs> there you go. Right, uh, let's talk about the NHS, shall we? We all know by now, don't we, the state that it's in. Quite frankly, it's not a good one, is it? Let's face it. Uh, we have a massive shortage and a growing shortage of GPs. That's an issue that's going to get worse and worse. Apparently by 2030, we're going to lose more than 10,000 doctors. But it's not just about doctors, is it? It's Pretty much everything, I think. I mean, you tell me. Can you think of an aspect of the NHS at the moment that is slick, that is kind of working well and as it was intended? Um, because to me, there seems to be problems in pretty much all the areas. And I have to make a caveat here. I'm not knocking uh, the hardworking doctors, nurses, porters, all the cleaners, all the kind of staff that are delivering the service. For me, I'm always quite critical of the... Uh, procedures and the processes and the strategies, not the people on the front line that are delivering them. Uh, Kevin, let me pick up with you. The government uh, announced their kind of digital strategy, their IT plan, mm. and it puts digital, you know, first and foremost, right at the front there as the future. Do you think it is? Uh, I do. And I think this is a really welcome announcement uh, about uh, this uh, increase in a focus on digital. You said one thing that was quite interesting, Michelle. You said the NHS is not in a good state, is it? And I'd actually like to take a different view, which is, think about it, one and a half million staff, a million patients seen every 36 hours, life expectancy today at 81 years compared to 66 when the NHS came into being. I think a lot of what's going on is magnificent and is working. A&E, uh, cancer services, I know there are issues, but... On the specifics of digital, I think it is absolutely... I'd probably like to see it turbocharged even more. Um, this is the future. Uh, you don't need to see GPs increasingly to get referral letters, etc. I think this is common sense. Every party, I hope, is going to really get behind it. And if we don't do it, it the NHS will suffer. So I'm really, really pleased. Have you ever had a digital consultation? Yes. Did you think it was sufficient and adequate? Uh, it served a purpose, yeah, at the time. I mean, I got a referral letter from it. Like, no, but, I mean, it was to get... Look, we all know about this. If Sometimes if, if, you want, if you've got a serious problem, you have to get a referral. You don't always have to do that in person. Mm. Charlotte was laughing at me, Michelle, there, and I didn't know what... No, it was, it was the lukewarm endorsement okay. of sort of not... Yes, it was great. It was just, mm, it served a purpose. It, it, it just... Yeah. It wasn't, there wasn't a great deal of well, enthusiasm. Well, it's always nicer doing these things in person, right? Uh, sometimes. I guess it depends on the ailment. I mean, if you've got a rash on your backside... Exactly. The last thing you want to be doing <laughs> is bending over in front of you, one hand on your iPhone, one hand here. <laughs> it's just not going to end well, is it? Let's be honest. Uh, anyway, Charlotte, uh, digital... 
strategy for the NHS? Yeah. Um, yeah, of course the NHS should have a digital strategy. Of course there is huge potential, uh, both to use the data that the NHS holds much more effectively, to use the technology that, where appropriate, could allow you to do telehealth. Actually, the more interesting stuff, I think, is around... Um, connecting various health data. We all know that experience of, you know, going to your GP and then you need to see a different GP, but they've lost your notes. And then you go to a hospital and they don't have the information and you're going through a system that is so fragmented. And so I think that's where digital can really add value. But, you know, Michelle, you're completely right. The system is not working. And, you know, Kevin mentioned um, various things like life expectancy and cancer there. Well, actually, life expectancy, the gap between the poorest and the richest in this country, life expectancy uh, is widening. Um, you can die a decade earlier in some areas than in others. Um, actually, if you look at our but Charlotte, outcomes... sorry to interrupt, only because it's very pertinent to what you said. You know, I know about this from the habits of my uh, working-class parents. Sometimes that's not the NHS. That's often how folks lead their lives. You're right. And, and you know what? You've nailed it. it. You've literally nailed it there, which is why also the increases in life expectancy are very little to do with the NHS. They're to do with lifestyle changes. They're to do with the way we work, the way we, you know, they're, they're, it's the social determinants is the kind of the term you use. But, but those things exactly that you say, levels of poverty, clean air, all that kind of thing. But also, if you take cancer, actually, our survival rates for cancer, for the most common type of stroke, are in the bottom half of, of comparable countries. You know, we are not performing well. And the waiting list, 6.5 million people on waiting lists, that's people who are becoming more disabled, living in pain, potentially dying early. So, so will digital solve that? No, it won't. Will it improve things? Yes, of course it will help. Of course it will. And we should make the most of it. But it's not sufficient to make to ensure we have a health system that is allowing people to access care when they need it, a system that's sustainable and affordable. This model is not affordable going forward um, and it's not delivering the health outcomes we want to see. I do think we're in a very peculiar situation, aren't we, where we have the most amazing technology. I mean, it was fantastic the way the volunteers came together with new technology and we had the rollout of the vaccine uh, programme on COVID. I mean, it, it really felt like we were in a new technological age when that happened. It was really fantastic. But at the same time, we have all the things that you've both been mentioning, uh, which which feels uh, wrong. You know, why are we in a modern age with these waiting lists, with these inability to uh, get proper testing for all kinds of cancers and things like that? Uh, and I do think that there really needs to now be the start of a conversation about why we are relying on the state to provide our health care. And I think at the moment, with all the kind of uh, demonstrations about uh, wanting more pay, is such an important thing to support. Because if we all had more pay, and we fought for that, and we worked out how to get that, then we could decide whether we want to pay for our own health care uh, that is better, maybe, than the state provision. But as long as a lot of us are on low wages, we have to rely on what is you know, often See, a rubbish service. You hit on an interesting point here because a lot of people um, have private health care already. So they have a private health care, whether they pay for that personally or they get it as an employee benefit. And I've often pondered, if you have personal health insurance, so you pay for that every month, should you get a reduction on your national insurance contributions that you pay? Because you don't use the NHS service in the way that you would be using it if you was a pure NHS user. So, yes, of course, I know you need to pay. You use uh, things like the emergency service provisions or the A&E and stuff like that. So, yes, pay something towards national uh, insurance. But if you've got your own health care, should you pay the same national insurance contribution as someone that doesn't? 
I don't have a problem with that, Michelle. I, I, I think starting to give people refunds because they've gone private gets very uh, complicated. It's the same principle if you people use you know private schools giving them refunds because you know I wouldn't I wouldn't be in favour of that. I, as a generalisation, folks with private healthcare probably on the higher levels of income, and I think uh, that's personal choice, which I'm in favour of. But I, I, I see where you, why you suggest it, but I don't think you should give uh, uh, refunds. And what's interesting is, are you saying then, Tessa, that you're in favour? It's quite big what you've just said. Are you saying let's just make healthcare totally private? No, I'm saying that in this country um, we never have, we never really talk about you know, why that's important, to not just rely on the state for healthcare. Yeah. Uh, obviously, those who can't afford private healthcare, that's all they've got. But given the sort of low expectations of how, you know, the NHS should be run often, and that's not to do with the people running it, it's simply to do with the priority it's given at any one particular time. There's no pressure, really, to make it better. But if there is pressure on people with higher wages to start saying, look, I'm going to find the best health I can for my family, then that is the best thing we can do so for are people who, saying, are, Tessa, who are poor or who can't afford private health care. So help me understand this, what you're saying. Are you saying pick up the NHS and privatise it? Or are you saying let's have a dual two-tier system? You've got the state provision and then you've got Private provision. So are you saying you want a two-tier? I'm saying neither of those. I'm saying something else. I am right. saying that um, there are two things to solve here in, in, in a way. One is that we need to move beyond just thinking it's the NHS that always saves us as a population, as a nation. Mm. Because a state provision of something might have the sort of limitations because it doesn't have the pressure that when people fight and pay for their own health care, that kind of pressure... Of uh, is very useful to create innovation. There's also the other issue, which is that, there, of course, there are always people that are too poor to do that at any particular moment as society hopefully progresses, which is why I disagree with you, mm. because I really don't think that if you go private, you should suddenly say, I don't suddenly live in a society and I'm not going to contribute to society's provision to help the poor. Oh, I, because I, that's yeah. what... No, I, I agree with you. That's what Michelle yeah, was you, suggested. Yeah, you, you agree with me. Right. I agree with you. Do I? But yes. disagree with yeah. you. So the two of <laughs> but, you disagree with me, and I, yes, I, I don't. Okay. I don't think but we should big... suddenly spend privately yeah. and forget. I think there's there are... society there with people in need. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's right. But also, national insurance is also paying your state pension. It's also paying yeah, kind yeah. of you know your unemployment benefits, etc. So, um, I think it wouldn't be as simple as being able to say that. Although I, I, you know, I understand the principle. I think it is, though, just worth us noting that we already have a two-tier system. So um, we've seen a ma- out the back of the pandemic with all the wait lists and the waiting times and the fact that people can't access care. Um, we have seen a huge increase in people opting out of the NHS because they c- literally can't access care. So what's the point in having a, a great universal free at the point of care system if you can't get the care in the first place? You know, if it's it might be free, it might be universal. But if it's not there for me, then it's not doing the job. So we already have a two tier system and we're going to have to. And this is where I think it is exactly right. We're going to have to have an really honest, really open conversation about if we if we want to protect something like the NHS, the current model is not sustainable. You know, yeah. the cost of it is soaring. Yeah. We're going to end up with the state only being the NHS. Well, well it was great under that. Labour, though, wasn't it? Can I say that, Michelle? Well, 
Outcomes under the under a Labour government in Asia was sensational. Well, but do you know what? They spent roughly eight percent. There was a roughly eight percent a year increase in the budget at the same time as GDP growth was averaging less than three percent. It is not. Yes, but there's not the money to do it. That's right. Everybody. I thought I'd slip that in at the end. To the break, and I am indeed going to go to the break, but I I want to land two points before I do so. You uh, teed up nicely, Charlotte. You mentioned we could do like and you, Tessa, about a big debate about all of this. Well, luckily for you guys, uh, I'll be doing a special uh, on the NHS over the summer. What is the answer to this? How are we going to fix it? What is the future of healthcare? We'll just dedicate the whole hour to that. Uh, Second point to you, I can't leave without uh, pointing this out. You say everything was better under Labour. I started this conversation about the future of digital in the NHS. Under the Labour government started in 2010, we had what was being described as one of the most catastrophic failures of an IT implementation project, which cost us the taxpayers over £10 billion. And we have precisely nothing to show for it. Make of that what you will. Uh, Right, going to take a quick break. Uh, When I come back, babies. Do you think they should be allowed at the workplace? It's all about the conversation about uh, whether or not they're allowed in the House of Commons. This is the whole kind of Stella Creasy thing. So we'll have that and more in a couple of minutes. Coming up on The Mark Stein Show. As Prince Charles apologises for slavery to the Commonwealth, renowned historian David Starkey returns to help us revise the revisionists. After the Prime Minister blamed Putin's toxic masculinity for invading Ukraine, broadcaster and former Page 3 girl Leilani Dowding asks, what is a man? Plus, continuing in the pursuit for justice, we are joined by Kiara Bird, a victim of Trudeau's vaccine regime. All that and more on The Mark Stein Show, tonight from 8 o'clock. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. My panel, Charlotte Pickles, who's the director of the Reform Think Tank, Kevin Craig, the former Labour councillor, and journalist Tessa Clark. Lots of you guys are getting in contact about that uh, NHS one. Derek quite simply says, digital doctors, no. I always like it when you put things in capital letters because then it means it makes me realise that you mean it, you mean business, you're not on the fence with any of it. Um, Many people are saying that when it comes to the NHS, it's not about digital for you guys. It's about layers of management. The sense I'm getting through from my inbox tonight is that you guys just feel that you need reform just at a management layer. I've got to say, I think it needs probably multi-layer reform um, and digital would be one of those layers that I would look at. But as I just kind of alluded to a moment ago, the public sector don't have a good track record when it comes to implementing IT projects. That is for sure. Right. Let's talk babies, shall we? Uh, They're going to be banned from the House of Commons following complaints that they're a distraction and Parliament perhaps wouldn't be taken seriously if young children were allowed in. This all follows a review after Labour backbencher Stella Creasy was criticised by the Commons authorities for bringing her son, Pip, who was then three months old, uh, into (coughs) debates last year. What do we think to this? I've got to be completely honest, I'm a working mum and quite frankly I come to work to get away from my child. Um, so the thought of bringing him in with me, no offence, son, if you are listening, but toddlers, they're hard work. Um, where do we stand on this? Uh, I'll start with you, Tessa. Children, let's start initially with Parliament and then we'll branch it out into workspaces broader. Where do you stand? Well, um, 
no, they shouldn't be in the debating chamber. But yes, there should be far more free creches, free childcare everywhere in all places to help people and their mixing of family and work lives. And uh, if, if there isn't that in Parliament, the very place where people want to go to represent others and lead the country and work out policy, then <laughs> where else can we expect a leadership on that? So it is quite shocking, actually, that there isn't that sort of provision. Um, because, you know, I'm, I'm a working parent, and I have to say I felt very lucky to be in London where there was quite a lot of provision business. going on and free childcare. And when my Very expensive, some of this childcare business. Uh, some of it was, yeah. was free and state-provided, mm. um, and some of it was very expensive, and some of it was by friends. But uh, that's London, you know. There's a whole country out there as well where working parents are struggling. And so I think that in, in, in Parliament, it needs to set the lead, really, and provide everything for working parents uh, that it can, so they can do what we elect them to do. Evan? Well, I've got two uh, things to say on this. Firstly, I'm very disappointed uh, in the report, and I, I do, uh, I'm very relaxed about babies and kids in and around Parliament. Um, I'm surprised at this what, report. in the actual chamber? Yeah, well, like if you're, if you're a, a member of Parliament, you're a woman, and you're breastfeeding... I've got no problem with it, you know, and I think Parliament is making itself look a little bit outdated here. Um, uh, totally endorsed the point, of course, of maximising childcare provision. But I also understand more broadly that viewers and listeners will... Some will... Well, a guy was on GB News earlier today, police officer. Of course you can't bring your kids to work. And he was saying, shall I bring my kids as well? No, mate, you're a police officer. And people who work in shops and in factory environments, I, I can imagine them th- thinking, this debate doesn't mean anything to me. I can't take my kids to work. But in environments where it's possible, I'm all for it. In the old days, you had to pretend work was more important than your family. You had to pretend that um, you, you wanted to work all hours. You had to wear a suit every day. Things are getting better. But I also do know, and I remember, that sometimes work was a break from young children. So I get that. Yeah, as I say, no offence, son, if you Still are listening. <laughs> of course, I adore him. But toddlers are, whew, they're hard work. They are. Um, I'm astonished, though, that you think that um, the actual chamber, where you're sitting there, you're debating matters of, you know, huge significance, you would think that would be OK, reasonable and professional to be distracted by a child screeching. I, I just don't have a problem with it. I think, who, who made up these rules that a, 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 a breastfeeding member of parliament at a critical time in the child's life, if it's possible, why shouldn't Stella Creasy have been allowed to take her kid into the chamber? Who says that that's not on? Why is that a problem? Well, I think it's just a little bit uh, peculiar. But, Charlotte, where do you stand on it? Yeah, I, I, I agree with what's been decided. I don't think there's any need to take a baby strapped to you into the debating chamber. And parliament has a crash. Uh, so it's not like MPs can't go, haven't got a place in Parliament where they can take their children for childcare. There is childcare available on the parliamentary estate. Um, so I don't think it's necessary, no. But I totally agree on needing to have much cheaper childcare and uh, high quality childcare available to people. I think actually the bigger issue, if you want a family friendly Parliament, because actually we should also be thinking about family-friendly parliaments for men and not just for mm, women, if we want point. to see a more balanced uh, parenting model, mm. is things like the fact that 
you have to stay on a Monday, they vote until 10pm at night. Well, that's not family friendly. No. I'd much rather they had a conversation about that than about whether you can strap your kid and go into the chamber. And I think it's a really important point that Kevin was making that... Um, for the majority of the country, it wouldn't be an option. You know, if I was working as a shop assistant, I couldn't go in with a baby strapped to me. If I was a nurse, I couldn't go in with a baby strapped to me. And there is a risk this becomes an issue for professional, you know, slightly wealthier uh, parents who can have something which they don't need if there's a crash or there's other childcare provision available that then lower income working people can't have. And I think that is a problem and I think that is something we should think about and I think Kevin's right about that. And would you have any limits, Kevin? So you're saying, like, you know, why not take your baby? Like, what, what would you think now if I had my toddler in here creating carnage? Would you, you just go, you, oh, yeah. You couldn't do it because, I mean, you said yourself you can barely make the autocue work as it is without a kid. <laughs> He's I mean, what would it He's be like? absolutely right, <laughs> and gentlemen. We right. dumped you in there, though. I what, <laughs> yeah, but I can't deny it. So, you know, I don't think we want to go down that route because it, it, it doesn't work. It's distracting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so then how would you? How can you say that for me personally, I can't scroll, read and talk and think and look after a kid, but you can sit in Parliament, decide complex laws, have in-depth debate about, I don't know, future security of this country and still look after mm. a child? Well, I can just go on personal experience. I've sat in meetings in council chambers with fellow councillors who had to bring their kid in because they couldn't get childcare. It works. And I think, you know, I am very, very sensitive to all the views and listeners. You know, my mum could never take me into the kitchen at the school where she was a dinner lady. No-one offered her that chance. But where you can do it, I, I like it and I welcome it and I think it can be done. But isn't that the point? A lot of the time it happens because uh, women or dads are desperate because they can't afford childcare oh, yeah. or they can't do it at the last minute. And, you, you know, that's really been the problem. Yeah. Uh, and as we've seen during lockdown, uh, you know, parents forced to school their, their kids, completely disrupting their work life and ability to earn a wage to help their family. Yeah. But the, the other thing to say... Um, is that um, apparently uh, one, one thing that Stella Creasy sort of has got right is pointing out the uh, lack of what she says is proper maternity or paternity funding in Parliament as well. So it, it's not um, uh, the dream scenario, as you, you would imagine. Uh, but where I do disagree with, with Stella Creasy is the idea that parenting and politics should mix, that everything political... Uh, needs to be personal. You know, it is not an insult to women or, or, or dads and, and, and men and fathers uh, to say that babies shouldn't be in the chamber. Well, it's it just another solution needs to be found, uh, which clearly hasn't been found uh, well enough for, for MPs. There's a couple of interesting sentiments coming through. Um, on the email, actually, I read a couple of them out. Sally says, Michelle, women cannot have it all. If you want a career, don't have a child. Simple. You need to take personal responsibility. She says, this issue ticks me off because uh, parents have totally outsourced childcare. Elizabeth uh, shares that sentiment. She says, Michelle, does anyone else find it difficult to stomach the idea that babies and children are just something to be farmed out at the very cheapest cost to someone else? Bringing up a child is a vocation, not a chore. I just, I wanted to read those out because I found that quite fascinating, especially, Sally, when you say women can't have it all if you want a career, don't have a child. I found that quite interesting because I'm a mum and uh, quite a new mum, actually, and, of course, I work too. Um, and I think, actually, you can have birth and I think you're no less of a mum or a dad, by the way, because, to your point, Charlotte, yeah. 
I always found it interesting that people yes. would pick on the mum yes. and say you shouldn't be a mum and go to work, but yet simultaneously have no mothers with the dad going yep. to work. Absolutely. Um, so I actually think that you can have both. I think you can have a career and uh, a child. My son would always take priority to, to GB News or any other work I do. If someone was to message me now and say my child's had an accident, I'd hand over the reins to Kevin, God help you all, uh, <laughs> and I'd be out of there going to look after my Everyone child. wishes him very good health. But I think you can have it all. Yeah. And, I, I find and you should. This, yeah, and I find that sentiment quite interesting. And actually, I think that children can benefit from a parent that has got more than one facet to them. So you're their mummy and very committed and loving mummy, but you're also this and that and the other. You're a, a whole and not a single mm. thing. Am I talking yeah. nonsense? No, and there's, there's actually research on that. Um, and, and even for lone parents um, where actually you don't have the luxury of maybe one being able to stay at home and yeah. one going out to work, because, of course, we should think about that. And I, yeah. um, and I think we often ignore that. But actually there's evidence that even for lone parents, it's actually good for their children if they work at least part-time because it is that role modelling. It's seeing the kind of um, someone going out and, and working and that's really helpful. So I think that's absolutely right. But ultimately, um, I think women should have the choice. And so if you want to work... There should be, and actually, it's incredibly important to the economy, incredibly important that, that women do work. Uh, it makes a big difference to growth, which is how we then fund our public services, etc. Um, but you should have a choice. If you want to stay at home and that fits with your life and it fits with kind of what you want to do, you should be able to do that. Yeah. But if you want to go out to work, we should also value that and That's we it. should provide the support. Well, I agree with that. And I, I think that what's lost here as well is the distinction between having a private life and what that means and having a public life. And if we fuse the two all together all the time. So we bring our families into our, our workplace and, and, you know, parents are expected to turn up at schools all the time, you, you know, and then we're supposed to work from home one minute and then not the next. You know, basically we, we mm. lose what's important about private life, a time to reflect away from the pressures of work, away from the pressures of political debates, away from the pressures of GB News Studios and just reflect, do nothing, mm. read poetry, whatever it is, feed the dog, um, put your feet up and watch GB News. Uh, you know, anything. If we I'll lose... do both at the same po- time. Exactly. Put your feet up on the sofa, get your poetry out and uh, watch <laughs> a bit of GB uh, News in the background. That is culture yeah. right whatever there. Whatever it takes. With a burger, I don't know. Whatever yeah. it takes. But, but to have that peace and quiet away from the pressures is something we're losing in a society and we need to regain why that's important. It's also worth remembering not everybody does have children. And so yeah. actually for some people in the chamber who are trying to focus on giving that speech they need to give in you know, doing the, the proper scrutiny of the legislation, and if there is a screaming child, or even not a screaming child, a gurgling happy child, you know, whatever it might be, that could be distracting. Oh, and I think there has to be a balance come on, between... Charlotte, don't you think some folks should relax a bit and not get so upset about a kid here and there in the, you know, in the workplace? It, no, I really don't. No? And I, I think you should respect the fact as... Um, we've just been hearing that it is a workplace. That's what it is. And of course, there will be emergency moments. Of course, people are going to understand that. That's yeah. why there's probably a crash in the parliament. That's why actually Stella Creasy will have a parliamentary office where there are staff in yeah. there. That's where there will be other things. It doesn't require that baby being in the chamber. Well, I think MPs and members... Well, what would you do next? 
take pets into the chamber as well while you're at it. Now that I could get on board ah, with. Oh, see? <laughs> see? Look at I'm this. kidding, I'm Look kidding. At that. <laughs> I thought Look you was going to say absolutely not. I was going to say, but no, you'd be up for it. <laughs> I think Mark bring... A I mean, again, going back, going back to this really important point that so many of you... Go back to it really quickly. Yeah, we'll think, I can't do it in my job. Why should MPs and have it? I get that. But more kids, more dogs in the workplace. Why not? It makes us all happier. <laughs> well, you say it makes us all happier. A lot of people are absolutely terrified of dogs. Imagine going to a dog at work if there's dogs over, you've got a phobia. Uh, you tell me, would you be happy with that? Lots of people share your sentiment. Kevin saying this is one rule for them, one rule for another about uh, the people that have got cushy jobs, etc. Um, Mark says, Michelle, I cannot believe you've just said you've come to work to get away from your child. Shame on you. Mark, hold a joke. I know in this day and age, you know, heaven forbid we tell jokes about anything, but uh, I was kind of half joking. Anyway, um, Ken says, can't believe the banned babies from uh, the House of Commons. Have they forgot that what we've got at the moment is a bunch of babies running the country already? Say. I'll say nothing, Ken. That's all I've got time for. Tessa, Kevin, Charlotte, thanks for your time. Thank you at home for your company. Have a fantastic night. Read some poetry and I'll see you tomorrow. Good evening, Alex Deacon here with your latest weather updates. Friday brings more showers, more heavy showers as well. A bit more of a breeze blowing tomorrow, which means the showers will tend to move through a little faster. The showers at the moment are very slow moving. Not everywhere seeing them today, but the isobars are very well spaced. This weather front will approach and bring some wetter weather for the weekend. But for the time being, as I said, it's all about the showers, dodging those downpours, some slow-moving, heavy, thundery showers out there, creating some problems on the roads, a lot of spray and surface water, easing from Wales and southwest England overnight, but some more heavy downpours likely over the Midlands and northeast England. Elsewhere, becoming mostly dry, temperatures 10 to 13 Celsius. The details for Friday... It's messy. We start with a lot of cloud and rain over northeast England and we see more rain pushing into northeast Scotland and across the Northern Isles. Elsewhere, for many, it's a dry start tomorrow, but then look at that. The showers just get going and again, they'll be heavy and perhaps thundery in places. With more of a breeze, they will move through. The main focus by the afternoon, eastern England, northeast Scotland, Wales, southern parts of England, southwest Scotland looking a little drier. Temperatures might squeaking to the 20s between the showers across eastern England, but mostly we're in the high teens. And then that next weather system we saw uh, earlier on will move into Northern Ireland on Friday evening. Heavy rain, gusty winds, and that then moves across Scotland and into England and Wales for the weekend. Some uncertainty about the exact timing of it, and it does look as if East Anglia and the South East will stay dry on Saturday with decent spells of sunshine. But elsewhere, cloud and rain moving in, and it's followed by showers, certainly for Scotland and Northern Ireland. Wales and southwest England looking mostly dry on Saturday afternoon. Again, temperatures mostly only in the high teens, maybe into the low 20s with some sunny spells across the southeast. Sunshine and showers again on Sunday. Showers mostly in the north and the west, looking largely dry on Sunday across the south. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Cur, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>